Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible with you or in front of you on some device or in a hard copy, I'd invite you to open up to John through John's biography of Jesus. If you need a Bible, there's some at the back. Uh, give Clarence a wave and he'll bring one up for you even. Maybe uh, he's got a couple. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Clarence. Uh, really quickly, let me just remind us where we've come from in the last couple of weeks, and I hope you'll understand why as we walk through this. Chapter 13 is the beginning of the end of John's gospel. Almost the whole rest of the book, starting at the beginning of 13, right almost to the end, takes place over the course of basically a weekend. It's important for us to, to keep that in mind, especially as we've slowed down and taken, you know, three verses last week. We're only going to get through three or four again this week. We sort of uh, can chop it up into sections and, and sort of forget what happened a few sections ago because we're only together once a week. And, and so it's easy for us to sort of silo off the parts of the story and, and forget that they're all connected. Here's what I mean. In the Gospel of John, John 13 starts with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Do you remember that from a few weeks ago? And then John 19 ends with Jesus' burial. How much time separates those two events? Jesus washing the disciples' feet and his burial. How much time? Anybody know? Maybe. Maybe two days. It could be, you know, uh, 24, 36 hours. Our most generous timelines are around a couple of days. And so we're getting a lot of information from John here, on purpose, I would add, that covers a short amount of time, right? John 13 to 19, maybe a couple of days. And so when we consider that, that, that seven chapters that we're in the middle of now cover a, a, about a day or maybe two days, but chapters 1 through 12 cover like three years. And so I think it really brings to light John's statement right at the end of his gospel where he says in John 21, now, there are many other things that Jesus did, and if every one of them were to be written, I suppose the world itself could not even contain the books that would be written. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read that verse, and I'm like, okay, John, that's, come on, really? Sounds a little hyperbolic. It sounds like a bit of an exaggeration, but maybe not so much. All that to help us remember, in this scene where we are right now, we've got Jesus and his 12, 11 disciples, 11 remaining disciples, sitting around the same table in the same room as they were at the beginning of chapter 13. And remember all that's happened so far. As we said, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and then he said to them, listen, you guys, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right to do that. So if I take on this role, this job, that's reserved only for the lowliest servant by washing your feet, then you should expect to be doing the same thing as you follow me. And he says in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than a master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. And then he told the group around the table that one of them, one of these closest 12, would betray him. And then he singles out Judas Iscariot, who was maybe even sitting at one of the places of honor right next to him. And Judas leaves into the night, into the darkness. And to the rest, Jesus says, listen, I'm ushering in a new community. One whose hallmark, one whose uniform, you guys will be recognized by what? Love. How you love one another. And as if that's not enough to happen in such a short time already, then he says, oh, by the way, I'm leaving, and you can't come with me. You can't follow me. 
our impulsive friend Peter steps up and said, of course I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you right to the death. Maybe these other guys can't, these, you know, these sloughs over here, but I'm there. I'll be with you. And Jesus predicts Peter's denial that very night. Then we got into chapter 14 last week, and Jesus gave these 11, whose heads are no doubt spinning, these encouraging words. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be stirred up like they're ingredients in a, an industrial mixer. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God or trust in God. And believe also in me. Trust me in this. So much has happened in just, what, maybe an hour, maybe two hours. Right? I keep saying this, but put yourself in the place of the disciples sitting around this table hearing these things, watching these things happen, trying to wrap their minds around what Jesus is saying. And I think Jesus says this to them because he sees the trouble on their faces. Just don't let your hearts be troubled. Let me read our text this morning. I'm going to start from verse 1 and go down to verse 7, even though we're going to focus on kind of the second half because it is sort of one big speech. Jesus says, Let your hearts not be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, as there are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But now, from now on, you do know him, the Father, and have seen him. Let me just uh, pray really quick as we dive into these words. God, thank you for these words. Holy Spirit, we have said a couple of times already this morning that you help us to interpret God's word, and so we ask you to do that right now. We pray that these would be your words, not Sean's words, uh, and that you would move us and guide us towards life. Amen. When we come to the Bible, when we come to Scripture, one of the things we are always forced to compare is religion and gospel. Religion, as we're using it here, is, is any system that teaches us that, that we really have it within us, the ability to save ourselves, or the ability to have true life, full life, everything we need. And I hope as you, you see that definition, uh, you see just how, how widespread and all-encompassing it can be. It's any system that teaches us that we have it within ourselves to save ourselves. Religion says, look inside and you'll find everything you need. On the other hand, gospel says that we are completely unable to save ourselves. The gospel says that our only hope for salvation, our only hope for true life, real life, meaning, purpose, all the things we're looking for is we have to find something outside of ourselves. We cannot do it on our own. Now, even before we get into Jesus' words, especially that verse 6, you can see from these two definitions that the gospel is extremely extremely offensive to our current culture. See, the, the dominant worldview around us these days has actually moved even past religion. The cultural narratives no longer ask 
look inside yourself for everything you need to be yourself. But it goes beyond that to even say, how dare you suggest I need any help? How dare you suggest I need to be saved from anything? Tim Keller helpfully insults everyone by saying this. The gospel, by telling us that our salvation is free and undeserved, is really insulting. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift. Now this offends both moral and religious people who think that their decency gives them an advantage over the less moral people. I'm not, I'm not that bad, so I'm probably okay. The gospel is also insulting by telling us that Jesus died for us. It tells us that we are so wicked that only the death of the Son of God could save us. Now this offends the modern cult of self-expression and the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. It tells us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul writes, right? He continues and says, the gospel by telling us that trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough. Thereby, it insists that no good person will be saved, but only those who come to God through Jesus. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way. And we don't like losing our autonomy. The gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus suffering and serving, not by conquering and destroying. And that following him means to suffer and serve with him. And this offends people who want salvation to be an easy life, the good life. It also offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. Now we can read the Old Testament and we can see the, the failure of religion as we've defined it. So many times the Israelites failed and, and fell into the trap of just assuming if they kept all the rules, they'd be good with God. Or, differently, similarly but different I guess, that since they were already God's chosen people, they could do whatever they want and they were good no matter what. It's kind of like that modern thought of, well, I, I prayed a prayer once and now I'm good. God will just forgive me and at the end it'll, it'll all be fine. The prophet Isaiah called this out in the people, condemning them for living as though their works would justify them. And Jesus quotes this earlier in his ministry, especially in, I think it's Mark chapter 4 or so. Isaiah, Isaiah says to the people, you're trying to draw near to God with your words and your actions, but your hearts are far from me. They're cold. They're a long way. So many times in all four Gospels, Jesus contrasts religion and Gospel and how he interacted with the religious elites of the day. And it's really easy for us to, a couple thousand years removed, look at the Gospels and jump on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, you guys just missed it. But look at what they did. They did all sorts of religious activities. They tithed on everything they owned. They fasted multiple times a week. They memorized all kinds of Bible but it was all in an effort to earn God's favor. And how many of us fall into that same trap? Thinking, listen, hey, I showed up to church this week. This is actually the second time this month, so I'm above average. God must be happy with me if I'm on the downhill side of the curve, right? Or maybe we think to ourselves, maybe not in these words, but somewhere in there, you know, I haven't, I haven't done the best at loving my neighbor this week, but I read a few verses in the Bible every day, or at least opened the app to see the verse of the day. God should be pretty happy with all my efforts. But Jesus came to say, 
That's not good enough. And more than that, he came to say that it's impossible for us to work and earn God's favor. Now the good news is that he did promise his followers that they could be made right with God. That the relationship between us and God could be fixed. But it wasn't going to be through their work. It wasn't going to be through our work. It was going to be through his work. And that's what's happening here in John 14. Jesus has said, listen, I got to go. But I'm preparing a place for you. I'm making a way for you. And I'll be back to get you. And he ends that promise with more words of assurance and encouragement in verse 4. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. Again, with their minds spinning, Thomas steps up with a question in verse 5. And he says, you know, we have no idea where you're going. You've just told us you're leaving. We don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? Now, the more we study these texts, the more we see John around the table here, the more I like, or the more we see Thomas around the table, the more I like him. He's a guy who's kind of been pigeonholed by, by his doubts right at the end, right? Maybe you've heard the phrase, well, like, you're just a doubting Thomas. That's this guy. He gets this bad rap because in John 20, Jesus appears in his resurrection body to the disciples, but for whatever reason, Thomas isn't there with them. And so the disciples, they, they find him or he comes back or whatever else. They get together again. They say, Thomas, we saw him. He's alive. And Thomas fa famously replies, Unless I touch his wounds, I won't believe it. Boom. Doubting Thomas. But let's give Thomas a little bit of slack. See, here's the thing. People don't come back from the dead. None of the other 11 disciples seem to suspect that Jesus would come back from the dead, right? We don't see them checking their watches on that Sunday morning and say, okay, it's been a few days. We should go check the tomb, right? It wasn't them that did it. And so what I think and others too, is that Thomas might be just more what we would call a type A, rational, I just need to see the evidence kind of guy. And I think many of us can identify with that. This doesn't make sense, prove it. But he does ask a really good question here. Now, it's only been about 10 minutes, or, or a few minutes probably, right? About 10 verses in our Bible since Jesus said he's leaving, and now Jesus says, I'm going, you can't follow me, but you'll know the way. And Thomas, I can see him rubbing his temples a little bit and saying, we don't even know where you're going. How can we possibly know how to get there? And in this moment, Jesus gives another promise. We looked at his first promise last week. He was going to go prepare a place for them and come back. And this promise also follows the, the command, the instruction of verse 1, believe in me, trust me. These promises that Jesus makes hinge on faith. He's given these promises to those who have committed themselves to follow Jesus as disciples. And the second promise is this, a path to heaven. A path to be with him. And he does this by laying down, again, probably the clearest expression of the gospel or the clearest expression of theology, our understanding of God in all of the book of John, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets salvation. No one gets to heaven except through me. It's beautiful because Jesus doesn't say, you, you will know the way at some point, but he says, you do know the way because you know me. Because you know me. He says, I'm the way. I'm the way to gain access to the Father. The only way to access the presence of God is through Jesus. He is the 
only one that can lead them to that place that he's gone to prepare for them. Now let me suggest that everyone on the planet, regardless of their religious affiliation or lack of a religious affiliation, recognizes that something's wrong in the world. That something's in the way of whether it's getting to God or getting to heaven or real life or being your truest self, there's something in the way. And there's a lot of uh, answers given out to overcome that thing, whether it's charity or, or penance or karma or rein, uh, reincarnation or just living out my identity however I see fit or even martyrdom, ways to overcome this thing. But all religions and all religious people actually acknowledge what the Bible teaches throughout. The way to God is blocked. There's a problem. Something hinders us from living that best life, that life we were created to live, and somehow we need to overcome it. Now in the Old Testament, God taught his people this with an object lesson. In the, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple, there was a thick, heavy curtain that separated uh, separated mankind from the earthly dwelling place of God. It was the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from where the people could go, right? And the veil was a symbol for sin. It was that thing blocking access to God. So because of that sin, because of that brokenness in our lives, we need a mediator. We need someone to stand in the gap, someone who can get us into the presence of God because we can't do it ourselves. But in the Old Testament, in the Jew, for the Jews, that person was the priest. And once a year, he would pass through the veil, enter the presence of God, enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would confess the sins of the entire nation. When Jesus dies, remember what happens to that veil? Torn in two, right? Top to bottom, split in half. Just as the veil in the Old Testament symbolized the separation between us and God, it's being torn, shows that there is now a way for us to enter that holy place, to enter the presence of God. And that way is Jesus. He is the only one that can bridge the chasm that separates the sinful person from the holy God. And Jesus here is using the imagery of a way, of a path, of a road to teach the disciples and to teach us that he is able to take us from one point in our sinful selves, in our sinful state, to a different point to be reconciled with God. We don't need to worry about a location or a destination anymore. We don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. We don't need to focus on a place. Instead, we focus all our attention on a person, on Jesus. Last week we said that heaven is all about living with Jesus. And so similarly, we'll say that the way, salvation, the way to heaven, is about walking with Jesus. And here's the thing that separates Christianity from pretty much every other religion. That the founder, Jesus, isn't just some religious teacher. He's not just some sort of guide or, or shaman or guru who has found the way and says, hey, I've, I found it, I've discovered it, come with me here but he is the way. As one commentator writes, Jesus does not only give advice or directions, but he takes us by the hand and leads us, and he strengthens us, and he guides us personally every day. He does not tell us the way, he is the way. Again, this idea and many people in our day, it's called exclusive, it's called intolerant, and it's even called violent. 
People are offended by it, as we saw in that Keller quote a bit earlier, because it strikes at some of our culture's highest values, autonomy and pride, being able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and it tells us we're not good enough to save ourselves. But here's the thing we have to remember. Yes, this is an exclusive statement. There is only one way to God, and that's Jesus. But the gospel is radically inclusive in that anyone who comes to Jesus finds the way. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Right from Genesis 12 and Abraham's call and covenant to say that, you know, I'm going to make you a blessing for all people. Right through all the covenants and and spots in the middle through to the, the Great Commission where the disciples are sent to how many nations? All nations. Right to the end in Revelation where we see how many tribes, tongues, and nations worshiping represented before Jesus? Every one of them. This claim of Jesus is exclusive, yes, but it's also radically inclusive. It is for everyone. Matt Carter, uh, another pastor and commentator, helpfully writes, Jesus doesn't make this exclusive statement because he's trying to win a popularity contest, but he says it because it's true. And what Jesus says can be trusted because he himself is the truth. He doesn't simply tell the truth, he embodies it. He is the source of truth. The real truth is absolute. And then Jesus seals this promise with a word in verse 7, where he says, If you'd known me, you'd have known my Father, but now you do know him and have seen him. This word, this verse from Jesus ties us right back to the prologue, right back to the beginning of John, the opening verses where, where John lays out for us what he's going to teach. And he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word what? Was God. Jesus just said, if you saw me, you saw God. If you know me, you know the Father. A little bit later in verse 14, uh, John 1, 14, he writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus promises that he is the way, and he is the truth, and that he is the life is anchored in the fact that Jesus is God. I appreciate how uh, Gary Burge, another commentator, writes, the exclusive claim of Christianity about Christ is not centered on our belief that Jesus was right about God. He was just a teacher that showed us the right way. It's centered on our claim that God was fully present in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Jesus' way was not superior because it promotes a higher ethic or because it champions values that resonate with our spiritual sensitivities. Jesus' way is true because in him we find God drawing us to himself. These verses make one of these passages that we could just keep on mining and mining and mining and find more and more gold. But I want to wrap us up. I'm going to give us some time to just sort of think and pray and and dwell on a few things from these verses, and then I'll, I'll pray through them as well. Remember, from chapter 14, 1 to 7, this whole chunk, all these beautiful promises, they've come after a single command. Don't be troubled, but trust in me. And here's the beauty of the gospel, that when you put your faith in Jesus, you don't need to rely on yourself because Jesus is the way. 
You don't need to live in uncertainty because Jesus is the truth. And you don't need to fear death because Jesus is the life. Let's just take a minute. We can pray uh, together where you are and just consider what each of those three things might mean for us, that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. And we can continue to ask the Holy Spirit to uh, reveal the truths that are buried in those things to us. Uh, and then I'll, I'll close our time in prayer, and Arnie will lead us in a couple more songs. Jesus, this morning we, we thank you for this promise that you have made a way for us. Pray that um, in this moment that we would remember that opening uh, sort of challenge and, and command that you, you tell us not to let our hearts be troubled, but to believe in God and believe in you, to trust in God and trust in you. Holy Spirit, would you stir up in our hearts right now ways where we are trusting in ourselves and not you. Just point some things out. Jesus, forgive us for when we have not kept this command. When we have, we have gone our own way, we've put our trust in what we think we can accomplish or the stuff we have or the world we live in, or, or all these things, when we have put our hope and trust in something that's not you. Pray that you would steer us back to a heart that's not troubled and one that believes in God and believes in you. Jesus, um, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show us uh, ways in our lives where we're relying on ourselves. Let us confess those things steer us back to the truth that Jesus, you are the way. In the same way, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal ways where we are inundated in uncertainty. Our world is, is full of it. Show us in our hearts where we are uh, defined by uncertainty. And steer us back towards Jesus, you being the truth. Give us understanding of that. Give us clarity of thought and understanding and wisdom in that, Jesus, that you are truth. And if there's something we've seen over the last 18 months or so, that so many of us fear death. So I pray that you would reveal any of that in our lives too. We're scared of death and we see it as, as an end or as the end. Steer our hearts to 
the understanding that Jesus, you are life, in you is life, and our, our physical death is just a transition to being with you. we're not sure at this moment at what we believe, if we're not sure if we are disciples, if those promises apply to us, I, I pray that um, Spirit, you'd reveal that to us too, and that we would pray a, a, a simple prayer of Jesus, let me follow you. Help me to follow you. I believe, I want to believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We pray all of these things, Jesus, in your good, good name. Amen.